the the big I think sticking point for a lot of organizations is that they they want accessibility to be a project that they do and then they complete when in fact it's part of your everyday processes that you have to start to modify um, and that kind of change management within an organization especially what if one has never done it before can be hard because people get used to doing things a specific way hello friends my name is kirill and you're listening to my ux career podcast on this podcast i'm sharing my personal thoughts on how to start a career path in ux how to grow your skills and become a better designer. Also, I have conversations with other designers and design leaders trying to show that there are many different perspectives and opinions on the key questions about UX career. So if you're a UX designer or considering becoming one, this podcast will get you better prepared for finding a job in UX. Opinions expressed on this podcast are my own and do not necessarily reflect the views of my current or previous employers. And don't forget, this is just one human's point of view. Also, if you're interested in UX career insights and um, some key learnings from my experience, uh, you can sign up for my newsletter about UX career. Uh, go to newsletter.uxcareer.co. Now, back to the episode. This is the second part uh, of my conversation with Janice Sitar, uh, who is a certified web accessibility specialist at Central One. We didn't finish the whole list of topics last time, so we're continuing with the future of accessibility as a practice, the future of assistive technologies, and the role of accessibility specialists. We also discussed the most common objections from business side and how he handles them, and a few other interesting insights. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Welcome back, Janice. How was your week? It was great, Carol. Uh, thanks for having me back. I'm uh, looking forward to wrapping up our, our conversation. Yeah, last week uh, we had a very exciting conversation and we went uh, into so much detail about the craft of accessibility in your story and um, all the tips and tricks uh, from the world of accessibility and designing accessible experiences. And we didn't have time to finish two additional topics uh, about the future and the objections and how to handle them. Let's start with the future and what you think will happen with, uh, with this industry and with this um, problem space um, in the upcoming years, kind of, I guess, maybe the short term changes and the longer term and how young designers or more experienced designers who are, who are creating experiences today can get prepared for this change. How they can really um, maybe adjust what they do today or start thinking about and learning more about this stuff to make sure that in future they're more uh, adapted uh, to the reality. What are your thoughts on this? Sure. Um, so uh, the challenge I think with the future is that it's kind of vague in Canada still um, because our federal law is still being constructed to a degree. Um, we know that there are gonna be federal requirements coming, um, but what shape they're gonna take is still being figured out. Um, so now is actually a good time for people to start getting their, their uh, feet under themselves so they can understand what's coming down the pipeline. If you're in Ontario, this, is, this should be your lived reality already. Um, if you're working for uh, clients in Ontario or for an organization in Ontario, you do have to meet AOTA, um, and that's for uh, all your content. It's, it used to be that it was only content from before 2014. 
uh, sorry, content after 2014, but now it's everything. Um, and what does AIODA so stand for? It's the Accessible Ontario, uh, sorry, the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disability Act. Um, it was a law that Ontario uh, brought in um, in the late, uh, in sort of uh, the early aughts of this of this century. Um, and uh, the first requirement came uh, for uh, 2014, where it required that new or uh, significantly redesigned web pages uh, had to be compliant to WCAG 2.0 level A. And then uh, uh, this past January 1st um, was when the new threshold got crossed where all content, regardless of how old it is, had to be compliant to uh, WCAG level AA, um, WCAG 2.0 level AA, which brought in a whole new set of requirements. That's where the color contrast requirement comes from. Um, and that's probably the biggest one that UX and designers really need to get a handle on. Um, because the use of color can have such a strong impact and also like not designing the things like a specific color. Like if you're making a warning text um, yellow on like a white background, it's really not going to work um, because it's too low contrast. So getting used to that idea that you should check the colors that you're using for text against the background um, is a basic practice that anybody can do. Um, there are some really great tools out there. Like I really like one called Tanaguru Contrast Finder. Um, which allows you to uh, compare two colors, but then it'll also give you the option of setting whether or not you want it to find similar colors that are uh, that are compliant or uh, a variety of colors that are compliant. So the good thing is that like, if you're like, well, I wanna find a green that works with this because it's a button, uh, it's a background green for a, a, a continue button and I want it to be like that green stoplight, uh, uh, methodology where like green means go um if you have an inaccessible green already you plug it in usually that means that the person has white text on the foreground um, you plug it in um, and it'll search those values there's also one that i really like where it's a palette checker where you just put in all of your color palette um, and it uh, lets you put up i think like five to six colors and it'll tell you which ones work together and which ones don't um, so when you already have a preset palette, that'll at least tell you like, okay, I can use these colors in conjunction with each other, but not these ones. Um, the real challenging space is um, that uh, colors like oranges and greens, they kind of need to get pretty dark or uh, and uh, in order for white text to work on them. And that's a, a bit challenging. Like people really like a lighter green um, because it's, it seems brighter and friendlier. Um, but it does produce its own set of problems. The orange really gets muddy. Like it, it, goes, it was like a muddy brown um, instead of being the sort of like bright, vibrant orange that people kind of like. Um, uh, and so that, the, that produces its own set of challenges. And so if you have that already established in your, uh, your design, like or also like a yellow with a white text on the front, um, you, you start finding other solutions because the reality is that um, people just, a lot of people can't just see that at all. Um, and so you wanna make sure that you are enabling users to, to read your content um, as best as possible. Actually, I'm curious to hear what you think on the on how some applications and even operating systems uh, handle accessibility, especially with the color contrast. So what I noticed, not every single application will have uh, great color contrast by default, but there is a setting somewhere in the preferences where you can change and increase the color contrast and basically if it makes it more vibrant and more uh, contrasty from the UI point of view. 
What are your thoughts on this, I guess, workaround to still have more subtle colors by default, but then allowing this as a toggle on, so to say? That, uh, I would say that could work as long as you're testing for it. Um, because the thing is that even though the accessibility menu um, in both um, iOS and Android have been getting a lot more attention over the last while, it's still, you still want to make sure that it works by default out of the box. Um, the You should be putting your design through those, uh, the uh, increased font size, the increased contrast. And the other one that you should, everybody should really be doing is the invert colors. Um, because there's a there's the setting to completely invert the colors, and sometimes some colors that appear perfectly fine um, in the standard mode in the inverted completely vanish. Like it's it's stunning to see. It's like um, the way that the details on old uh, photo negative um, are so completely changed. If you put it up to the light versus looking at an actual photo, that's basically what you're doing. You're looking at um, your interface through. Um, the, uh, basically a negative um, and uh, it's it's really jarring to see how much content gets lost so I would always I would always recommend that designers test those things on their own devices um, or you know the, the, they exist on desktop too but um, the the settings have always been a bit easier to find on mobile um, and, and mobile has had certain things that desktop hasn't like screen orientation uh, like orientation rotation. Um, which is also a required thing. Like you really shouldn't be designing a mobile app to be in a fixed um, orientation. Mm -hmm. The reality is that um, both Apple and, uh, and, and, and Google uh, who own Android, they do a lot of work. They actually do a lot of heavy lifting. Like the um, Apple has recently introduced a feature called live text where you can basically take a photo of almost any text. And sometimes it's like remarkably uh, weird angles and it'll just select it and find it. They've, Oh, their OCR yeah. um, that they're introducing in, uh, in iOS 15, where like everything is, is OCR'd, is a giant game changer. It doesn't mean, what I worry is that people will think, oh, it's like, oh, well, Apple's handling for me. I don't have to do it. It's like, no, you still have to do it. <laughs> um, this, is, this is an accessibility bonus um, that is useful to everybody because it's like the, in the case of like, I think everyone listening to this has had the instance of like having to transcribe a photo um, that they took of a whiteboard <laughs> and to suddenly have that gone it's just like you just literally take a photo select it and then copy and paste it is a giant game changer that i don't think people have fully realized and won't realize until this feature is out in the wild it's gonna i think it's going to be one of the most successful ios features to come in ages i actually thought that um dark mode was going to be kind of like this uh, uh but it seems like brands haven't really uh jumped on it as, as much as i did i thought that users would force people to do that um but the utility of this iphone live text is jaw-dropping um just because it's like every, i can't think of a single person who couldn't find that useful um and there are other like technologies that are forthcoming that are going to be more useful um like I know uh, Microsoft has been promoting for a while that they have um, sort of like AI driven glasses that a blind person can wear and walk around and it'll announce like teenager on a skateboard, uh, you know, dog. And like those things have been around for a little while, but they're still kind of in the labs, like they're not fully released. Um, but there is that feature coming as well, where like um, that technology will become more mainstream instead of being sort of super expensive and exploratory or, um, or uh, I guess like a tech demo. It's like real functional products are coming. 
And that's actually a really interesting point about the image recognition and announcing, basically kind of verbalizing what the, the system can see to the person who cannot see. Thinking about like all the massive efforts from, I think mostly Google, but I'm sure a bunch of other companies about uh, the machine learning systems when they use human labor and like us as consumers trying to kind of decode the captures, uh, like find the stairs and show the stoplights and like show where the bikes on these images are. So all this annoying stuff. But with the time, I think the bank or like the quality of the image recognition will, will grow exponentially. And I wonder if uh, this data set and this, I guess, systems would be would become available maybe like for, for, for payment uh, for devices like this and for other systems that the users who cannot see the world with their eyes uh, can benefit from. And um, I think that's actually, a, I think it will be a huge beneficial, uh, huge benefit for, for those users, for those people um, to get this, yeah, to get value for, from these data sets and machine learning. Um, I think what we might end up seeing is um, that there are probably going to be APIs to hook into some of these yeah. systems, so that your like your app can do these sorts of things. Or like it, like the in the live text example, it's like yeah, you could take a photo of a menu in a restaurant and then have it read up the text. That that reading of menus in a public venue in a public place has been a huge issue for the blind community for a long, long time. Um, so the fact that they can just now do this by default. Um, is going to be pretty amazing. And I think also tips the hat to where Apple is heading with their AR VR, um, because um, it's clear that something is coming. Um, they've been too invested in AR for a while. And these are the first real, like, like wonderfully practical uses of things where like, yeah, you could look at a poster and like have it just read out to you. Like that's, I mean, that would be amazing. Like um, Google did kind of try that in the first class, but it never really took off as that product. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a screen reader for the real world, which is like, yeah, sounds very inspiring and uh, valuable for so many folks. Uh, so how do you think this, like the talking about the AR, VR, um, what do you think will happen with, I guess, besides the image recognition and really how these uh, technologies would evolve, will evolve, um, and how accessibility can play into this? Um, I mean, that's a really good question because we don't really know, um, largely because Apple's so secretive, like we're not going to know until they release something. Um, but I'm assuming that they're already doing testing with uh, people with different disabilities. They've done that in the past where some, as a new product has been released um, in the promotional videos, they'll sometimes have discussions with the people that they've spoken with because um, they have relationships with people who will have, um, uh, uh, who are quadriplegics or, or, other, or have other types of disabilities, not just vision, um, that would really benefit from some of these features. So um, that's a, a major question because like I, the, for me, the AR, VR always raises the specter of um, how do you enter uh, input? Like, how do you, like, do you just speak out or are you forced to have an on-screen keyboard? Um, the fact that you would have to have at least two different methods uh, with the hope that a person could use at least one of them. Um, but then again, for uh, people who say who are deafblind, like what becomes their mode of output, right? Um, if they're like, would they have like a Bluetooth refreshable braille display or something like there are a bunch of questions around that space. Um, but at the same time, um, Apple seems to be starting to knock down some of those walls. 
Um, and also we don't know if it could be a thing where it's like, it's a, it's about the conjunction of our devices, like the way that our phone will interact with our, our watches. Like, um, just the fact that like, um, they recently announced that the, the Apple watch will have like one handed controls where you can like select items by just like pinching in your fingers. Um, and like by moving your, uh, it'll have like a little on-screen cursor that you move around your wrist and it'll be able to do selections and things, which really solves the problem that I think a lot of Apple Watch users have had in the past before where they're like, my hands are occupied, but I need to shut off this timer. So I use either a nose tap, oh, yeah. um, <laughs> or, uh, you shout at Siri to try and get it to stop, um, which doesn't always work, um, or doesn't work in certain instances where it's like too loud and it just won't hear it. Um, so I it'll be interesting to see where some of this is going in the next little bit. Um, but just the fact that like Apple's made such strong moves towards uh, in, in their headphones with like noise canceling and like the heads up Siri, like where the hands-free Siri, I think we're, we're entering a space where like you can start to cobble together the components that look like a very viable AR VR product. Um, but that, that space is never hasn't really taken off yet. So I think that everyone's just kind of waiting to see what happens. Like it's like with smartwatches, smartwatches are around for a while, um, but it wasn't until the Apple watch kind of packaged everything in a way that really uh, made it appealing to a wide market. Yeah. Yeah. Apple has this, uh, I guess, feature or capability to, to make a product more appealing to a wider audience. They, they have a history of that, of the successes and also failures as well. The Apple Watch was a failure a bit. Like they thought it was a communication device and it's really clearly a fitness device. Like it was so communication centered at the beginning. And it's like clear that all of that stuff has been wiped away. Like the little dial that had like your friend's faces and stuff so you could communicate with them quickly, gone. And <laughs> um, in to a degree, they were doing some public A-B testing, I think, but you have to do that at a certain point. Like there's only, there's only so much internal testing will get you. Yeah, that's true. And uh, it looks like it's a good example of uh, smart product uh, management decision and product strategy uh, based on the real data from, from the real customers. It's probably an expensive experiment, but uh, with Apple scale, they can afford it, I'm sure. Yeah, they, they, can, they can afford a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious what you think will happen with the accessibility specialist role. And do you think that more companies will get these... Um, specialists in-house or maybe the this role will be spread out across different uh, project uh, team members uh, kind of more like i guess yeah delegating some of the questions some of the activities to to other folks so they don't have to hire kind of specialists for that uh, what do you think will happen um the way i see it working is probably pretty similar to what happened in central one uh in that sense that like the organization brought me in as a specialist um, and I started working with the different product teams, but we realized quickly that um, an individual or even like two or three people can bottleneck an organization pretty fast if you've got a wide set of products that are all like racing to get out the door. And so even within accessibility, we've we've recognized that. So like there is a, a model, uh, the what I described in that sense of like having a specific subject matter expert that then um, helps the organization uh, is the sort of early phase of how most organizations do accessibility. And then the sort of more mature phase, uh, uh, which comes from the uh, uh, distributed accessibility maturity model um, is one where that, that specialist basically trains the individuals within the organization for their own responsibilities. So like 
the POs and the, and the BAs, they have a set of responsibilities as they initiate a project. And then the UX designers get a set of responsibilities as they sort of work on that project. And then the developers and testers get their own set of priorities and, and, and understanding so they can own that part of development and, and testing. Um, because if one person tries to do it all, um, you, they're not going to get done. Um, you, you run a real risk of, of uh, bottlenecking your project. And also just like only one, one person can't um, help four or five or 10 different product teams. And so that uh, once your organization is organized that way, you're very much more mature than that initial organization. And so it is a, a thing where I think we'll see that pattern happen where uh, a sort of accessibility either like um, senior person will come in and then they will sort of spread the information out um, or you'll have organizations start to build up large teams in order to, to sort of like the way that uh, ux teams um, came in um, and sort of were an outgrowth of like you had an, a person who was interested in ux before like in the sort of early 2000s to being like a hard defined uh, position within an organization and sometimes like that there's a even a, like ux squads within within teams uh within organizations that then radiate out to the different product teams so the that distributed method is probably the most functional one in the sense that like um it'll get you the most amount of people understanding the responsibilities because it's very easy to just like when it's one person doing the testing it's like i don't have to do anything that person will take care of it all it's like no you kind of do own some of that um, because even if that accessibility person is showing up at certain points to just validate like, okay, yeah, that's fine. Yep. That's fine. Um, or no fix that. Um, the, the, that'll go a lot faster. Um, if those teams do that ahead of time, because they'll know if they, if you have a carousel, like what sort of parameters you have to do, uh, and, or what sort of steps you have to take to make that carousel accessible. And if that's baked into the product from the get-go, um, you'll save yourself a lot of time down the road. Basically, it means that like through development and testing, you might not even create any accessibility issues because everybody already knows what's required. The main challenge right now is that tools like Figma or other design tools um, like Sketch, uh, they don't really incorporate accessibility that well yet. And so it is a challenge where um, having a single source of truth is really challenging um, because you're still dependent on like the visual design and then like some sort of requirements or parameters that are sitting on like a confluence page somewhere um, and getting those two things to work together or people understand that is a bit of a challenge um, as uh, organizations are building up their design systems. Um, to make it like a functional design system where the developer can come along and just pick up a component and know what is required uh, both from a visual standpoint but then also from accessibility um, that's something i've struggled with and i've talked to other um, uh, accessibility designers about in terms of like how you try to do that documentation um, so that's that's a major challenge i think that all organizations are going to face as they start to try to do this work is like um, how do we organize ourselves so that we're not burning a ton of time at the end and that we're baking in uh, all of those requirements because honestly the requirements are pretty set in terms of like if you have an input field like does it have a label does it like can can you read it um visually like does it meet the color contrast requirements um and can you navigate to in a keyboard um so like those sorts of things are known um we're not inventing things whole cloth <laughs> um a lot of accessibility is actually fairly well documented um, so the, but the challenge is, is that it's uh, it's big like there's a lot of stuff that you may need to cover depending on the, the type of component in terms of um, keyboard support and other things and the the big i think 
sticking point for a lot of organizations is that they they want accessibility to be a project that they do and then they complete when in fact it's part of your everyday processes that you have to start to modify um, and that kind of change management within an organization especially what if one has never done it before can be hard because people get used to doing things a specific way interesting yeah so it sounds more like that you see the future will be that the companies will be hiring those experts as like the key evangelists advocates strategists uh, who would be tasked with building the the processes, the knowledge, and advocating for accessible design from within, and really kind of spreading this knowledge um, among many different team members to empower more people to to kind of to produce accessible design instead of being the bottleneck. And I think it completely makes sense because with the growing demand for this, and also kind of quite quite significant effort that that it may take for complex projects, I think. Uh, I guess bottlenecking yourself into one person has to do everything. You just kind of delegate everything to this person would definitely slow everything down. So I think it's definitely a smart strategy, uh, smart vision for for this for the future of this role. And I think a lot of organizations are going to start to realize that they need this as part of their own um, DEI initiatives. Like the, that's a big trend in in HR, and accessibility is part of that. You don't if your DEI initiative doesn't include accessibility or people with disabilities, um, you don't, you're not actually being inclusive. Um, and that's the short of it is like, if uh, inclusivity means involving uh, uh, advocating for accessibility. I think it's a good segue into the next um, section of the of this talk. I'm curious to hear what are the common objections against um, putting effort into producing accessible uh, experiences and products. Because I've seen a lot of, um, yes, naysayers or just kind of questioning from the need behind this and like the real, the value and like if it's really the most important thing to do, considering that you have only a, a defined set of engineers and designers to, to produce something. And there are always a gazillion of different priorities uh, on their roadmap. So what are the key objections that you have heard from your experience and how do you respond to them? Probably the most common one is like, well, we've never done this before. Why do we have to do it now? Um, and that one's, I, I think, probably the most challenging one because it, in the sense that um, there's this sort of belief that uh, people with disabilities don't use your products. Um, and the reality might be is that they don't use your products because they can't use your products. <laughs> um, that's a very simple thing. Like it, um, if they can't use your, your product, of course you're not gonna have a user base that demands accessibility. Um, and the challenge there is that I think organizations have to realize that um, as they build personas for the different types of users that they have, uh, accessibility should be part of that um, because the reality is that um, you might be deliberately omitting a part of your customer base that you may want. Like the if your product is accessible and useful, usable by everybody, that should increase your market share. Um, um, and so that's one of those places where um, you might actually see product growth. And the the challenge is that sometimes they're like, well, what's my return on investment? If I spend this money on making sure my product is, access is accessible, will I see 10 times the amount of return? And it's like, well, maybe not. Um, it's hard to quantify what that may be. Um, 
Tim Cook famously said when, when he was asked why Apple does accessibility and spends money on accessibility, he's like, we don't care about the bloody ROI. Like, and for Tim Cook to say that, it's like, oh my, that's like, <laughs> he might as well have dropped an F-bomb because <laughs> um, he's normally so um, calm and, and controlled um, to see genuine passion and anger uh, coming out of someone um, uh, who was saying that like, no, these are things we have to do um, is I think a strong case. And I, I, I think pointing to Tim Cook saying those sorts of things is like a good example of like, it's like, yeah, he has the ability to say, no, we don't have to do this, this stuff. Um, the, uh, the one thing I do wanna say uh, before we continue on this is that the W3C in their uh, web accessibility initiative uh, uh, website do have a page on business cases and like what you should argue for. Um, and I would want to make sure that uh, people uh, go look at that because it might be different based on their own organization. Like for me in Central One, it's like we're community-based banking. Accessibility is just a natural extension of like that sort of community drive. So like um, even though it wasn't something that the organization had done before, it was it fully fits into the um, credit union values. Um, so in that sense, it, that, the, the, that's not that much of a reach for us, um, but you still have to deal with like the challenge of like um, that sometimes people perceive accessibility to like slow down innovation um, or to like hamper your design um, when in fact that's not the case at all. Um, and so, the the W3C argues that it actually drives innovation um, because it forces you to take advantage of certain things that uh, that keep changing because accessibility keeps adapting as technologies change. So um, you uh, can uh, it actually is a driver of innovation um, and it is actually pretty good for business. Um, and that in general, if you're an organization that believes in providing a good user experience, accessibility is part of that. Um, and I think one of the things that organizations need to sort of drive into their mindset is that there is no MVP without accessibility. Um, if you're trying to tack on accessibility after you, you've figured out what the minimum viable aspect of your product is, you've already failed at what the minimum aspect of your product is because accessibility is part of that. Um, again, largely because like if you go to try to fix it afterwards, you're going to spend a lot more money. Um, it, there is a dollar savings aspect to this um, where the, the further upstream you move it um, into your development and design practice, the cheaper it'll be down the road. Um, the, I mean, the other major thing is that we just now have laws that are starting to force this on organizations. Um, and so you have to be cognizant of the fact that especially out of the United States, the amount of accessibility lawsuits have hit astronomical numbers. Like the, there have been a lot more uh, lawsuits um, and a lot more wins, like a major victory uh, that happened in the last while was Domino's um, being defeated in, in the courts uh, where they, Domino's was trying to uh, say that they didn't have to conform to uh, accessibility guidelines. Um, and most people don't know that Domino's uh, primary business now is actually selling a pizza platform, not selling pizzas themselves. They sell um, the software um, for taking in online ordering and all that. And that's actually a much bigger part of its business. The same way that AWS is actually a much bigger part of Amazon's business than the actual storefront is. Um, so the providing that platform for pizza restaurants um, it, uh, was a major challenge because if Domino's didn't fix this, it means that the rest of that entire industry doesn't fix it. So, um, and it was a case where you also from an external view, you're like, wait a minute, you spent like 
tens of millions of dollars on lawsuits and lawyers and everything when the the development and design practice was in like the tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars like explain the roi of that to me. and um the other major thing is that depending on the nature of your organization um basically telling people with disabilities like no we're not going to fix our products is a real bad look like it uh, especially with social media now um, organizations have a chance to be really raked over the coals publicly and depending on who you are like that might not be a withstandable uh, uh, mistake to make because it could ruin your reputation and also like other vendors and customers that you rely on might also be like actually we don't want to do business with you anymore goodbye um, so you do like run a real risk of of um looking both mean and petty <laughs> publicly, which I don't think most brands ever want. And But the other major thing is that I think um, just starting to do testing and starting to do research with people with disabilities will start to make you aware of where your, your failing failure points are. Um, I think one of the most fascinating things that happened to me uh, when I was doing some research is uh, I, so I went to attend a conference um, for, uh, for blind people in that was being held here in the lower mainland. I set up my little table. I did a survey um, asking people um, what uh, what sort of issues they had with their banking. And the thing I found shocking was that it wasn't so much specific issues with websites or the uh, like mobile apps. Their primary uh, uh, point of complaint were uh, uh, point of sale machines like debit pads um, that don't announce their values. Um, and ATMs that also don't have accessibility features built into that. And I was like, oh, I never even thought of that. I never even thought to test an ATM. I never even thought to test a, a point of sale device. Um, and if you think about uh, as a consumer, if I didn't know what I was exactly paying at any given point in time, that would be pretty frightening. Um, and so it is a question of um, how and where in our sort of um chain of responsibility those products lie because me being a web person it's like are atms part of my terrain or not um these point of sale devices because they're actually owned by the individual businesses um and not uh, like they're you know, the they're not the sort of property of the credit union system or any sort of bank um it becomes a real challenge where suddenly it's like oh we now have to talk to each individual store owner and find out if they can have a a a a debit or credit machine that supports uh, audio output. And it's like, I've only seen a handful of those out in the market. My, my wife is constantly amazed by the fact that I take pictures of these machines when I find them that has a like a headphone jack. <laughs> like I have my little library of like, oh, like, hey, look, this one works. Um, and so the that's where, again, like as part of UX, that user research and talking to users just gains you so much. And it's I've always found that that's the place where organizations are hesitant because, yeah, it is time consuming, but like you can learn a lot of stuff that you just never even thought of. Awesome. Uh, actually, uh, one, one more question I had for you is what are your thoughts on the dark mode? So you mentioned that like you were expecting the dark mode would be uh, the next big thing for accessibility. So what's really kind of the industry's um, opinion of the dark mode? Because I have an unpopular opinion. I am not a big fan. And like for me, I can feel that I have a bit more cognitive load when I'm trying to, when I'm looking at the dark mode screen. I don't know why, but like maybe something just like personal preferences. But I'm not a big fan. And uh, but so far, I hear like people, lots of people are raving about this. So what's accessibility take on this? Uh, I mean, dark mode is a form of an accessibility 
play setting um, just because uh, some people like, especially if they have dyslexia, they don't like uh, white backgrounds, like uh, white backgrounds with black text, like with like really black text actually is a problem for them. They prefer uh, often like a sort of like creamier sort of background or like uh, something that diffuses that hard light. Um, and so I can see also why some brands are hesitant because it means like you have two different color systems <laughs> that you have to consider. Uh, and that it, it is an explosion of work. Um, so it, it is a thing where it's like, it's not free, it's not instant. Um, but in the end, I think uh, why I believe organizations should support dark mode is that you're meeting users in the mode that they prefer. Um, it, it means that users have the, the flexibility to choose how they uh, they view your app um, and your content in, in a manner that's more pleasing to them. Um, and I've found that I only use dark mode in certain apps. Like there's just some that I prefer in dark mode and some that I don't. Um, but some people like it on all the time. And in particular, uh, especially on the Mac, the, there's been a lot of discussion about how like you go to a web page that doesn't support dark mode and suddenly it's like blinding light <laughs> amongst the sort of like dark, dark space. Um, and so it is a thing where um, I think in the end, um, it's something that everyone should support mostly because it means that users, you are respecting the user's settings. Um, and that's what it really comes down to is like, I have this visual preference. It's the same way thing of like supporting increased font sizing um, because it's like you, the user like has that setting set for themselves because they need it. And you're now telling them like, no, 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 no. You don't actually need that. It's like, you don't know that. Let them decide for that. You control maybe the font type and the colors that, that are happening, but really it's up to the, the end user whether or not they, they have that or not. Um, and how they use it. Um, now, I think in iOS 15, they're also introducing different font scaling for different on a per app basis. Um, so it's again, it's one of these things that like once you have it set, um, really it's up to the user to, to provide that. And I can understand that. Like I can understand why brands don't want to give up that level of control. They're like, this is our brand. This is how we do things. Um, and, and it can also spiral. Like I remember um, when I first joined Central One, uh, talking to members of the UX team and being like, you know, it wouldn't be, it would be nice if we could somehow have some sort of accessibility settings um, where the user could also change different things, like in terms of um, it, specifically for people with dyslexia that they can maybe choose a more sort of dyslexia friendly font. Um, but then uh, looking at that from a support angle, it's like fonts also have different scaling and spacing, like they have different line heights. So it, the more fonts you try to support, the more work and testing you have to do. It's not, you can't just like plug in any font, any old font and it works. Um, but then even then what I, when I asked is like, do you think that organizations would tolerate having users choose between three to four different fonts? And they're like, probably not. That's actually the, the brands want to like, be like, this is, this is our, this is what we look like. This is like, cause each font also has like a tone of voice. Um, and so it's like, yeah, it's suddenly giving users the ability to like override that. Um, yeah, of course it would make some brand managers really like, <gasps> like, I, no, like, I work so hard to like make this look this way. Why are you, why, why do I want to give up that control to the user? Um, and so, yeah, it is a, 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 it's a bit of that. That's the, the real sort of give and take between um, the owners of a system and the users of a system.
Okay, so this was super insightful, uh, as as insightful as the first uh, session. I really appreciate um, you sharing more details about the future and the key objections and some other tips. Uh, thank you, Jens. It was it was a pleasure. Pleasure. It's always great talking to you, Carol. Thanks for listening. If you want to see more episodes and support this podcast, the best thing you can do is leave a review on iTunes and share with your friends and colleagues. If you have specific questions you would want me to answer, you can submit them on the UX Career website. Go to uxcareer.co slash questions. Goodbye, friends.